This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is the internet's leading provider of audio entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. When you're done with this episode, please visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for a free audiobook with your free 30-day trial membership. This week's recommendation is The Agony and the Ecstasy by Irving Stone. Since this week's episode is going to be on Ghirlandaio, I thought I would recommend a novel about his most famous student, Michelangelo. Despite some inaccuracies, this fictionalized account of Michelangelo's life helps to paint a picture of the artist in high Renaissance Italy. It's a wonderful story that does flesh out a complex relationship that existed between Michelangelo and Pope Julius, who commissioned the painting of the Sistine Ceiling. You may choose this or another one of their many titles when you visit audibletrial.com forward slash the renaissance for your free download. Welcome to the Renaissance, Episode 12, Ghirlandaio. Before we get started, I'd like to remind everyone about the Renaissance Tour of Italy. Um, this is something you're probably going to hear me talk a lot about over the next several months, maybe even the next year, but it's a great opportunity for us to see many of the works we discuss in this podcast. For me, there's just something magical about being able to walk the same streets that were once trod by Michelangelo and Leonardo and to see many of their works in person. I hope you will consider joining me for this adventure in 2017. And don't forget, if you sign up before December 1st of this year, you will receive a $250 discount. To view the details of the trip, you will need the tour ID, which is DBYRD2017. Just visit therenaissancepodcast.com and click on the Tours tab for more information. With that, let's jump into the life of Ghirlandaio. In the previous episode, we discussed Verrocchio and how Verrocchio's studio was this breeding ground for talent in the early High Renaissance. One of these students is Domenico Ghirlandaio, who was born sometime in 1449. According to Vasari, Ghirlandaio's father was a goldsmith, and he was first apprenticed to his father in the goldsmith's workshop. His father, Tommaso, was given the name Ghirlandaio because of the gold-embroidered headwear he invented and made famous. In fact, Ghirlandaio could be translated as garland maker. In his father's workshop, he would learn to draw, and this would lay the foundation for Ghirlandaio's career in the arts. It is said that while he was in the goldsmith's workshop, Ghirlandaio would draw portraits of those passing by. He did not seem to be drawn to the trade of the goldsmith, but rather to that of the painter. His father agreed and allowed him to apprentice with a painter. Some historians point to the painter Alesso Baldo Vinetti, 
but others claim that he studied directly under Verrocchio, just like Leonardo, and in fact was in the workshop with Leonardo. Either way, by the 1470s, Ghirlandaio was beginning his first commissions. His first works were in the Vespucci Chapel in Agnesante. If you recall from episode 10 on Botticelli, this is where Simonetta was buried, as well as Botticelli. Vasari sums these paintings up as a dead Christ with some saints and a misericordia over an arch in which the portrait of Amerigo Vespucci was painted. It was during this time that Ghirlandaio painted several portraits in tempera. One of these portraits, entitled simply Portrait of a Man, was painted in 1477, and it's one of his earliest known works. The identity of the man is unknown, but most likely it's one of Florence's many aristocrats, and Ghirlandaio painted several well-known nobles and important church figures during this period. Ghirlandaio became known for his ability to capture a likeness and expression. And almost like Roman portraiture, we see some imperfections, rather than a fully classicized painting. So his work is less idealized and more realistic. Ghirlandaio's first major commission that we're going to look at is St. Jerome in his study, painted around 1480. Now, this is the first work that brought Ghirlandaio popular acclaim, and it was painted for the Church of Agnesanti as well. For those of you who are unfamiliar with St. Jerome, he translated the Bible from Greek into Latin. Latin was the common language. His goal was to allow for common people to be able to read the Bible. And therefore, his translation is written in vulgar Latin, which means common Latin. It's somewhat ironic because this is an issue that would split the church towards the end of the High Renaissance as reformers such as Martin Luther argued that the Bible should be in the vernacular language so that common people could read it. St. Jerome himself is considered a doctor in the Catholic Church because of his contributions in translating the Bible. This painting was commissioned by the Vespucci family, and they also commissioned Botticelli at the same time to complete a painting of St. Augustine on the opposite side of the door, so both of these paintings would flank the entrance. It's possible that Ghirlandaio was influenced by Van Eyck's version, which was in the collection of the Medici family at the time. We see Jerome in a study with all the trappings of a scholar, with his pens, his books, his lectern. This helped to emphasize the Renaissance obsession with the humanities and the study of classical text in Greek and Latin. After completing this painting, Ghirlandaio was summoned to Rome by Pope Sixtus IV to paint the chapel. Yes, that's correct. This is the Sixtus who built the Sistine Chapel. Again, here we see where Ghirlandaio is often overshadowed by his student Michelangelo, because Ghirlandaio's paintings still exist along the walls of the Sistine Chapel today. One of the first paintings completed in Rome during this time was the calling of the apostles within the Sistine Chapel. Many tourists who walk through the Sistine Chapel never notice the paintings on the walls, because they are all struck by the work of Michelangelo on the ceiling. But if you look all around you, you see the work of Michelangelo's master, Ghirlandaio, as he tells the story of Christ and his disciples, paralleling that the story of Moses, which is painted across the chapel. This is meant to show continuity between the Old and New Testaments. The painting of Christ calling the apostles depicts the moment that Jesus calls the disciples to cast away their fishing nets and follow him. Jesus famously says, I will make you fishers of men. 
One of the artists that we'll talk about next time, Perugino, was brought in to assist with this massive project and help paint the walls of the Sistine Chapel. Returning to Florence, we're going to look at his painting of The Last Supper in 1486. If you look up an image of The Last Supper by Ghirlandaio, you'll find two images. Both are almost identical except for a few details, such as the cross between the arches in one and some of the positions of the apostles. This is not unusual. Artists would often use the same sketch for multiple paintings. We're going to discuss the later version in the Church of San Marco. The earlier one, which is almost identical as I said, is painted in the convent of Agnesante. What's interesting is that both of Ghirlandaio's Last Suppers are very similar to one painted by Andrea del Castano 30 years earlier. He follows a common motif depicting the Last Supper before Christ is arrested and crucified. Christ is in the center, and to his left is John, who's fallen asleep. This is the dramatic point in the story when Christ reveals that one of his disciples will betray him. That person, of course, is Judas, who is betrayed is separated from the others. And in this case, he's painted a cross from Christ, and he's the only member of the disciples not facing the viewer. The painting itself is loaded with symbolism, alluding to Christ and the crucifixion. In the background, we see a peacock, which alludes to the immortality of Christ. In the Renaissance, it was believed that the peacock's flesh would not rot or decay, and therefore this alluded to Christ's immortality. The spots on the tail feathers were believed to represent the all-seeing eye of God. If we look further, we see a cat next to Judas. Now, the cat sometimes represents laziness or lust, but in this case, it probably means trickery or treachery, alluding to Judas's betrayal of Christ. In 1485, Ghirlandaio was commissioned to paint the main altar of Santa Maria Novella. We've discussed Santa Maria Novella quite a bit, and it's one of Florence's main churches in addition to Santa Maria del Fiore. This, of course, is the one that's right next to the train station in Florence. Again, it's a masterpiece of fresco, but it's often overlooked due to the famous works by Masaccio and Paolo Uccello, which are also in the same church. This piece was commissioned by the Tornabuone family, who we mentioned in the episode on Verrocchio, and the chapel contains several images depicting the life of Mary. Here we see the birth of Mary. In the background, we have St. Anne, Mary's mother, who's propped up in bed, while the midwives prepare Mary for a bath. Above all of the figures, there's a frieze of dancing pooty behind the main scene, which seem to be celebrating the birth of Mary. If we go back to the midwives, we'll notice that they're all dressed as well-off Florentines, and very much in the Florentine fashion of the day. Shortly after completing that commission, he was again commissioned for another work in 1485, and this was for the altarpiece of Santa Trinita, or the Holy Trinity. It's here that we see most strongly the influence of Flemish art on Ghirlandaio. The colors and the realism of the figures mirror those of artists like Van Eyck. Also, the heavy symbolism is reminiscent of Northern European art of the day. In the background, we see two cities. The one to the left represents Rome, though a cathedral in the background looks very similar to Santa Maria del Fiore. Perhaps he's saying that Florence is the new Rome. The city to the far right symbolizes Jerusalem. There's even a reference to the death of Pompey the Great in the inscription on the sarcophagus, which reads, Ense Cadence Solimo Pompey 
fulvius auger numen atque me contagit erna dabit. This is an allusion to the prophecy made by Fulvius when Pompey the Great laid siege to Jerusalem. The prophecy of Fulvius, Fulvius's prophecy predicted that from the destruction of the temple of Jerusalem would arise a god that would be victorious over paganism. Again, this is alluding to the birth of Christ. The next fresco we will look at is part of a series within the same church of the Holy Trinity and depicts the moment that St. Francis meets Pope Honorius III to sanction Francis's holy order. If we look at the piece, we see that the church's arch acts as a triumphal arch over the entire scene, just like the Roman victories of old. Rather than taking place in Rome, however, Ghirlandaio paints the background as though it's taking place in Florence, with Florentine landmarks throughout. In the lower right corner, we see a portrait of Lorenzo de' Medici, as well as the sponsor of the chapel, Francesco Sassetti, and we also see Lorenzo's sons, Giuliano, Piero, and Giovanni, who would later become Pope Leo X. This is considered one of Ghirlandaio's greatest works. Ghirlandaio is a master painter and an expert in fresco. We know so little about him today, I think in part because of the greatness of Michelangelo, who overshadows his former master. Ironically, it is because of Ghirlandaio that Michelangelo was given the task of painting the Sistine ceiling in the first place. As a student of the greatest fresco painter of the day, it was assumed that he would be up to the task, even though he worked primarily as a sculptor. And despite Michelangelo's protest to the contrary, Pope Julius would constantly refer to the fact that he studied under Ghirlandaio. Of course, we know that Michelangelo's work has become a hallmark of the High Renaissance, and so it's understandable that this would overshadow anything that came prior. The next time you're in the Sistine Chapel, in addition to looking up, take a look around. There's a whole world of Renaissance art surrounding you, not just Michelangelo's ceiling. Ghirlandaio would die in 1494 of a fever and is buried in Santa Maria Novella. He was married with six children, one of whom became a painter. However, his family died out by the mid-17th century. Were it not for Ghirlandaio, we might not have Michelangelo's work today, for it was Ghirlandaio who sent Michelangelo to the Medici Palace to study sculpture. Some art historians have actually compared Ghirlandaio to Giotto as someone who innovated and really moved the art of fresco forward. So even though he was mostly forgotten by the general public and by art historians, his work occupies a unique place in the early High Renaissance and all fresco painters after him owe a debt to Ghirlandaio. As we wrap up this program, I have a, a few programming notes moving forward and some interesting news. I'm currently working on a Christmas episode, which I plan to have out just before the holiday, explaining some of the traditions that we still have today and how they relate to the customs of the Renaissance. Also, for those of you who follow tech news, Google Play will be releasing podcasts very soon. So very shortly, you will be able to find the Renaissance Podcast on Google Play as well as iTunes and Stitcher. I will let you know more details once they become available and when you can find the podcast on Google Play. For everyone in the States, I'd like to wish you a happy Thanksgiving, and I hope everyone has safe travels over the holiday. If you'd like to support the show, please remember you may do this by using the Amazon search bar in the lower right corner. A percentage of each purchase 
will go to the show and help keep us running. You may also make a donation through PayPal. There's a donate button located in the upper right corner where you may make a secure PayPal donation. No amount is too small and we appreciate all donations. And if you don't mind, please consider writing a review for the show on iTunes or Stitcher. This helps us get a little bit higher ranking and helps us to spread the word about what we're doing. Now, these reviews become very important in iTunes uh, to help the show become more visible. Join us in two weeks as we explore another one of Verrocchio's students. This would be the mentor of Raphael, Perugino. <laughs>